so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Yes. Oh, whoa, whoa, was that? <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> was that BB King? Was that BB uh, King? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, I got it. Here we go. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, let me try that again. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast, as always, are my co-hosts, Lindsay Nicolay. Bienvenidos, everybody. That was a good one. And Brent Leatherwood. Hello from stormy Nashville. Brent, it's opening day. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm so excited, and we're going to cover that in our culture section, but it's opening day. I've got my Braves hat on. I'm I'm ready for baseball, baby. Guys, it's a good day to do a podcast. Uh, There's some hope in the world because uh, we are celebrating the return of baseball. So, Lindsay, so that we can get into the uh, all the stuff going on, tell us first what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Before we get to our content on ERLC.com, I just want to take a minute and let listeners know about our two newsletters that we have, Highlights and The Weekly. You can go to our website at ERLC.com and scroll down to the Stay Connected bar. There you can choose Highlights lights or the weekly or both enter your name and your email and hit the subscribe button. Okay. So first up, uh, I want to start with something that a lot of people have been talking about, especially on social media and, and those involved in churches. So it's about singing in church and is it something we shouldn't be doing? We should be doing, uh, and actually Brent, and Josh were both involved in writing an explainer about this. So Travis Wusso uh, in D.C., Josh Wester, and Brent Leatherwood wrote an explainer titled, How Should Christians Think About Singing in Church During COVID-19? So Brent, you want to tell us a little bit about that? So this this arose a, a couple of weeks ago. The California Department of Health released a guidance that said that churches should not sing indoors. And obviously that is is problematic uh, for not just Christians in California, but for all of us that are looking at the experience in California, which is seeing a dramatic rise in the number of coronavirus cases there and and wondering if that is coming to, to where many of us live. Um, at the same time, it should be noted that folks in the legal arena came down in different places as to whether this was some sort of mandate or whether it was guidance, which is what we at the RLC have counseled civic leaders uh, to to produce uh, for their citizens, and in particular for houses of worship like churches. So I thought this explainer uh, was a good way for us to help Christians that are wrestling through what is a very complex matter. It is an extremely helpful explainer. I would encourage listeners to read through it. It goes through various aspects of this um, this really debate that's been happening on social media. Uh, I think it will give our listeners a better understanding of what's going on. And I especially loved the emphasis on churches partnering with civic leaders to serve our neighbors. I also wanted to point out that uh, the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, is committed to to watching these different issues and to helping churches understand um, various religious liberty concerns where there are concerns, where there aren't concerns. Um, and it's our privilege to be able to do that for churches. Right. And that that partnership aspect that you touched on, Lindsay, that, that is so important. As a matter of fact, that has been at the center of our guidance from the get-go, from March, as uh, Americans started facing this, and as pastors started wondering how can their uh, church deal with this moment and serve well in this moment, 
But but this uh, this in particular, this issue about singing, uh, this isn't just some arbitrary thing. Is is that right, Josh? When we're looking at this issue, there's no wonder uh, that it has evoked such, uh, you know, a visceral response or such a strong response from so many believers is that uh, when we gather for worship, this in many ways feels like someone said, hey, uh, you can gather for worship, but you can't preach. Uh, you can't you can't read from the scriptures. Like this is something that is very central uh, to the practice of Christian worship, and so it's something that we need to take very very seriously. But at the same time, uh, we try to in this explainer uh, show that uh, at this time, given this threat, we're dealing with a lot of what we call known unknowns, uh, and and so we try to affirm that we think that pastors and church leaders are capable of making the best decisions for their congregations to keep their people safe and also to lead them uh, in worship to God and also toward spiritual growth and toward ministry to other people. And so um, in this explainer, we tried to highlight the importance and hold in the balance the importance of all of these things. That's right. And a, and a number of churches in California are coming up with innovative ways uh, to continue carrying out their worship services in a normal fashion. A number of churches have moved their services outdoor. Um, as a matter of fact, my own church here in Tennessee, where we aren't facing uh, this kind of guidance, at least not yet, we are contemplating gathering together again for a big worship service outdoors, uh, where everybody has enough space to socially distance and do so responsibly. And um, and that's that's just further evidence that pastors are well ahead in many cases of where the government guidance is to try and serve their people well in this moment. So moving on, um, Alex Ward on our staff addressed something that was also circulating on social media. Does Everything cir- circulates on social media, doesn't it? Of course, that's how we become aware of so many things. But there was this clip of a church um, who rightly want to combat racism, the sin of racism, rightly recognize uh, racism as a spiritual warfare, a demonic struggle is from the pit of the enemy. But instead of using God's word and the the power of our Savior, um, they chose to use a, a, a clip and reenact a, a phrase from a popular novel, The Lord of the Rings. And while it is a great trilogy of novels, uh, it pales in comparison to the Word of God. It is not the Word of God, and it is not infallible. So Alex just walked us through this uh, and helped us understand why this prophetic sign that this uh, charismatic church was involved in, and I just want to note this, Alex makes clear this isn't a place to debate prophetic signs and different things like that, but he walks us through just why the Word of God is better and has more power and why... um, why the fulfillment of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is the one that we seek to um, destroy sin through. So it was a really good article. It also links back to the clip if you haven't uh, had a chance to watch that and see what that's talking about. And finally, we have an article with really practical implications by Stacy Rioch, and it's titled, What Do Our Words Say to a Watching World? Glorifying God by Respecting Those with Whom We Disagree. So she, again, as we've had so many articles contemplating the turmoil that's going on in the world and the the biting and the devouring of one another that's happening on social media, you know, she points out that, that Christians, sadly, in in this season have not looked a lot different than the world. And she just challenges us based on what scripture teaches us. She challenges us on how we are dealing with different opinions and with our opponents. And she asks us a series of questions, gives us some scripture to think through and calls us to make our main concern, the glory of God with our words and actions, and then the upholding of the value of all human beings made in the image of God. And really with our words and actions, we can we can really defame that, that image and that value and that dignity. I thought this was a really good piece because even before we hopped on to record this, we were just lamenting that discourse in public right now is just so unbelievably difficult. Because A, no one is charitable towards their opponents. B, everyone assumes the worst of those with whom they disagree. And C, we've just lost like a a common language with how to correspond with one another in the open. Everything becomes about owning your opponents and, uh, and just reinforcing kind of yourself to your own tribe. 
Uh, it's just, it's a lamentable state of things that we find ourselves in. Brent, that is so true. And, you know, I didn't feature this article today on the podcast, but our very own Josh Wester penned an article this week, which you can find on ERLC.com about social media and why we don't have to perform for people anymore because of the acceptance we have in Christ. And I think what you were saying, Brent, brings in a lot of that performance aspect. We want to own the opponent because we want to be owned by another group of people. We want to be accepted. And so a lot of it, who knows, maybe it comes down to the fear of not being accepted. So I would encourage you to check out that article as well. It's really good. So um, Josh and Brent, uh, we have some great stuff on ERLC.com, but that is your rundown for this week. That was great, Lindsay. And uh, particularly the last part, you know, thanks for highlighting that. Brent, there's been a lot going on in the world of culture. Tell us what's going on this week. So first, China's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Ambassador Liu, struggled on Sunday to explain drone footage from the region of Xinjiang that appears to show prisoners with shaved heads shackled, blindfolded, and being led to trains, reports Axios. Uh, Liu, who was confronted with the video uh, by the uh, British Broadcasting Corporation talk show host Andrew Marr, he's a he's a big deal over there. He gets all the big political stories on his uh, weekly show. The ambassador defended Xinjiang as the most beautiful uh, place and claimed he did not know where that footage came from. "Quote: Sometimes you have a transfer of prisoners," he said. Uh, This video, which was from last year, went viral uh, on the internet as people were finally exposed in many instances for the first time to the atrocity uh, that is happening in China with their Uyghur Muslim population. So since 2017, China's government has detained an estimated one to two million Uyghurs in re-education camps, is is what they're called. Uh, In effect, they're concentration camps. Uh, that it claims are being used uh, to root out extremism. Uh, This week, we actually saw an instance where one of our colleagues at a sister entity, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Griffin Gulledge, uh, who is the head of communications over there, tweeted out uh, some of this footage of uh, the Uyghur Muslims uh, being detained uh, by uh, Chinese uh, officials, and uh, it got a lot of traction on the social media webs. And that is a good example of the use of social media to bring awareness to this atrocity. Brent, do you know or did you read where that uh, that drone footage came from? Like, who's, whose drone was that? I'm curious. They said, like, because who was able to leak it? I guess nobody ever knew or... I, I'm not sure that we know, Lindsay, who actually was responsible for creating the drone footage. Uh, But I did see a lot of commentary online this week that said that wherever that came from, uh, almost certainly uh, the Chinese authorities would uh, inflict considerable punishments on whoever uh, the person was who obtained and then released that footage. And so it's actually, you know, it it was a kind of a heroic thing to do to capture that and then to, to get it out into the world. Absolutely. Well, and you wonder, you wonder what kind of effect something like that would have had in the midst of World War II or even before World War II, you know, had we had the ability to have footage of the horrible things, instant footage of the horrible things that were going on. That's exactly right. And the thing that concerns me so much is that, you know, after World War II, in light of the just awful, awful and horrific nature of the Holocaust, you know, the world uh, promised itself. We've, We've said it over and over again, never again, never again. Will we just stand idly by and watch these kinds of hu- like just the very most egregious uh, human rights violations? In this case, like putting people in internment in concentration camps, that we wouldn't just stand by and let that happen. And that's exactly what's happening in in present day China. And so the United States has to play a role in being uh, exercising moral leadership in the world and combating uh, this this unbelievably wicked uh, action taking place in China right now. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right about that, Josh. The RLC has been adamant uh, that China must be opposed morally through all of this, in addition to the other moves uh, made by our government, whether those are you know economic in nature, such as sanctions, or military in nature, such as redeploying uh, troops in that area or assets in the region. Uh, we believe that confronting them morally and calling them out for their atrocities 
is vitally important uh, for American foreign policy. That's not the only thing that happened this week. The Trump administration told China to close its diplomatic consulate in Houston, Texas, quote, in order to protect American intellectual property and Americans' private information, according to the State Department. And all of this comes on the heels of China's unprecedented moves in Hong Kong that effectively ended the two systems, one nation policy that allowed Hong Kong uh, an autonomous existence from communist mainland China. Uh, What is happening in that part of the world right now uh, is stunning. Elsewhere, coming as a surprise to no one, coronavirus is surging across the U.S., Uh, California this week reported over 12,800 new coronavirus cases on Wednesday, setting a new daily record for infections and putting the state well past New York for the most total confirmed cases in the U.S., according to the latest data from Johns Hopkins University. And the White House this week uh, has a list of 11 cities that are in need of, quote, aggressive action to combat the spread of COVID-19. Among those on the list, for our listeners, Baltimore, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, Las Vegas, Miami, Minneapolis, New Orleans, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and Nashville. Music City, USA. How does that make you feel, Lindsay? You know, it does not make me feel positive. That's for sure. But all the parents of small children waiting to go to school are screaming in their hearts as they get closer and closer to the fall session of school. Yeah, you know, I was talking to some friends or a friend who really doesn't think that this is as bad. Uh, And you said, you know, the death rate is similar to that of the flu. And that's true. But, you know, it's the, as I said, it's the after effects. If you read the stories of people who have survived, which thankfully many people do survive, many people don't have serious symptoms, but many people who do survive it, the lingering effects are terrible. And I don't want to risk getting it or giving it to anybody. So you'll be seeing me in my mask, giving you safety side hugs uh, for quite a while. Safety side hugs. Well, you give those even in a normal time, so... They're, well, we, sh- we can call them SBC side hugs. <laughs> exactly. We, I mean, one of, one of our colleagues pointed out on Slack this week that the reason masks are so effective is because uh, they help make sure that the droplets that are expressed by others, whether they are talking or projecting their voice, don't end up going down your throat. This colleague also expressed his horror at learning that in the time before coronavirus, people's droplets were ending up (laughs) going down his throat. That's disgusting, Brent. (laughs) It is disgusting, but it's science. (laughs) All right. Well, all of that, this this uncontrolled spread uh, across the United States, led this week uh, to the Bahamian government. That's right, the Bahamas are banning travelers from the U.S. and other countries where coronavirus cases are surging, reports CNN. My sister just actually moved back to the Bahamas. She is part Bahamian, and um, they made it in right on time. They had to go through rigorous series of tests, et cetera, COVID tests, things like that. Almost didn't make it. Uh, They got in on Wednesday, and that's when the commercial flights were banned. But also, she gets to wait out the quarantine in the Bahamas. I I was going to point out. Yeah, I was going to point out there. There are uh, there are few places that would be better in my mind to wait out and and conduct an isolated life than the Bahamas. You might need to go see your sister. I can't now. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So everybody wear a mask, wear a mask so Lindsay can be reunited with her sibling. (laughs) Yes. All right. The New York Times this week reported on something we thought was really interesting because we care about life. As countries around the world told people to stay home to slow the spread of the coronavirus, doctors in neonatal intensive care units were noticing something strange. Premature births were falling and in some cases and in some uh, countries drastically. Yeah, Brent, I saw that. It was fascinating to see that these uh, premature births have plummeted and to, uh, you know, it kind of makes you hopeful to 
understand like what could be some you know positive outcome of all of this time that we spend in quarantine uh, in order to ensure that more babies are are able to be carried to term and that are able to be born uh, in in better and healthier circumstances. And if you're wondering why, what could be the factors that are contributing to this, what they really don't know, but they are um, guessing that uh, a few of them could be, uh, one could be rest by staying home. Some pregnant women may have experienced less stress from work and commuting. Another could be that women staying home also could have avoided infections uh, in in their systems, which raise the odds of a premature birth. Another could be air pollution, which has been curtailed because a lot of us have stayed home. Uh, this is just a really interesting finding. It will be fascinating if by the end of this, they are actually able to pinpoint uh, one particular reason. But um, I thought this was a, a really good development on the life front. And staying with the, the life front, Baptist Press reported this week that pro-life advocates, including a Southern Baptist who works at the RLC, I should say, Welcome to Planned Parenthood Affiliates' repudiation of founder Margaret Sanger and her eugenics advocacy, but said that the country's number one abortion provider must do more to overcome her legacy. And so the the Southern Baptist that's prominent that the article talks about is our own Elizabeth Graham, who is managing all of the pro-life initiatives of the ERLC. She said, quote, removing Sanger's name cannot erase the connection between her racist eugenic ideas central to the founding of Planned Parenthood and the dehumanizing ideology that continues today at the heart of the abortion industry. Well, we're just thankful for this small step and that her eugenics advocacy is recognized. I uh, helped edit a book for a gentleman about uh, abortion, and it was just eye-opening to read some of Margaret Sanger's quotes and ideas and how people, even in the Christian community, came alongside her. But thankful also for this quote from Elizabeth and how it highlights the ERLC's work on behalf of unborn children and on behalf of the moms who suffer as a result of abortions and and the families. And, um, you know, this is just an issue that we are going to continue to work on while, as long as the Lord allows the ERLC to exist. That's right, Lindsay. And, you know, when you think about uh, Planned Parenthood's connection to Margaret Sanger, Margaret Sanger's philosophy of eugenics and her advocacy of eugenics is not just vile and anti-human, but it was fundamentally racist. Uh, It was about um, seeing certain kinds of people as unworthy of life. And uh, Planned Parenthood, in in trying to uh, sever the connection here between this, you know, person who was instrumental in establishing this organization and the work they're trying to do today, you know, when I think about that, The problem is, even if they do totally distance themselves away from Margaret Sanger, the work that they do in abortion is based in the same concept, that some people are fundamentally unworthy of life. And so, you know, what we could really pray for is for Planned Parenthood to repudiate that ideology that has taken the lives of nearly 70 million children since 1973. That's right. And we should be clear, while rejecting someone like Margaret Sanger is is a, a worthwhile thing to do. We should be clear, they are continuing with their abortion work that is ending lives that are made in the image of God, and we should not rest until that work is opposed and ended. So, absolutely. Staying in Baptist life, and this one is a bit of a sad note, uh, the Baptist record will cease printing after 143 years, going fully digital and free of charge on its website, according to editor William H. Perkins, Jr. Uh, The newspaper is the Baptist newspaper of record in the great state of Mississippi, and Perkins cited the newspaper's declining print subscription base as another factor that has led to the decision to cease printing, along with the hard-to-predict future costs of newsprint and postage. And, y'all, I got to say, I I hate to see this because these are are institutions that are really struggling right now, print newspapers in general, but especially in SBC life, and uh, it's hard to see one go. SBC President J.D. Greer this week said that his church uh, that he leads, Summit, Church in North Carolina will not hold full-scale worship gatherings for the remainder of 2020, 
the 12,000-member congregation will adopt a, quote, house church-style format until next year. In fact, a survey of pastors across the country from Christianity Today this week indicated that now upwards of 5% of pastors have decided to not hold in-person worship services for the remainder of 2020. Yeah, Brennan, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned that. So I've talked about several times. I've been back in North Carolina for most of the summer, and we'll be headed back to Tennessee uh, soon, God willing. And um, But while I've been here, my parents are members of Summit and small group leaders there. My sister is also a church member at Summit. And so uh, on many Sundays, I have... Uh, opted to just gather with with them and to uh, watch the live stream of their Sunday services. And it is something that they've figured out how to do uh, particularly well. But when you're dealing with, you know, 12,000 members and I think around 15,000 attenders on a on a given weekend, um, that that is a tremendous amount of people. And so I, I think to create some clarity and just long-term stability. They went ahead and announced this. I, I did see part of JD's announcement video where he said, you know, obviously things could change. And if they did, if miraculously things improved, we would absolutely love to go back to in-person gatherings earlier. But it wouldn't surprise me, honestly, if we see a lot of churches adopt this style. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty about what this fall is going to look like when, uh, as students try to go back to school, both in K-12 through and in colleges, and as many uh, many of us try to uh, return to a more normal pace of life, we're just not certain what that's going to look like, and especially for churches. That is correct. So on the on a lighter note, you mentioned this, Josh, at the top of our show, and I'm just so excited as an Atlanta Braves fan. Some really welcome news from the world of sport, to quote Mitt Romney. Baseball is back. So a shortened 60-game season awaits all of us. It actually began on Thursday this week with Dr. Anthony Fauci throwing out the ceremonial first pitch in a game between the New York Yankees and the Washington Nationals. Now, many are wondering, myself included, will baseball actually be able to get through this season that uh, compared with the typical 162-game season is a is a sprint uh, for these teams. Um, because of the concerns with coronavirus, these, these teams are going to be traveling and possible exposure. And if the virus gets in a particular clubhouse, it could actually take down multiple players. Uh, I don't know. And, and maybe that won't happen. But you know what? For at least one day, we're going to have live baseball being played at the professional level. And I am, I'm thrilled. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, I remember back in March uh, when we hit that kind of fateful day in March where literally everything was canceled, where I'm pretty sure, what, I think there was an NBA game that was stopped in the middle of the game or at the very beginning of the game or something. Uh, but it was, you know, just then one after another, we found out that all of these spring sports uh, were not going to be taking place. And then eventually we ended up in a place where there were no sports at all. And, you know, to see this opportunity to just, you know, watch America's pastime happen. It's gonna be it's gonna be awesome, and it's something that uh, man we've just desperately needed because I'm not sure how many more reruns of uh, epic sports games we can watch right now. And uh, finally, uh, I, I wanted to save this for the end. Uh, so this is a bit of a somber note. Um, all of us at the RLC and and several of us in particular lost a close friend uh, this week when uh, Pastor John Powell from Emmanuel Baptist Church. Uh, down near Houston, Texas, in uh, actually New Caney, Texas, is, is where he pastors. Um, he was tragically killed uh, this week when he was serving others who were in need on the side of a road, um, folks who were involved in a car accident. And um, he gave his life uh, serving those uh, in that moment. And uh, all of us are feeling the the loss of John and um and our, our prayers, especially, are, are with his young family uh, that he leaves behind. Yeah, it's an utter shock. It's devastating. John and Catherine and I were close in seminary and have kept in touch. And uh, John just seemed invincible. So it's hard to imagine a world without John. He's um, just one of the most unique men you would ever meet and genuinely loved the Lord, loved his family, loved the church, loved his community. And as many have said, it's no surprise that he died serving because that's how he lived his life. So yeah, be praying for Catherine, his wife, his widow now, which is just hard to even imagine. And his four children ages 11, 11 to four, sweet, sweet family. 
And we just look forward to seeing him again. We're thankful for the hope in Christ that we have. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it said by a number of people that John Powell is someone who he died the way that he lived. He was somebody who absolutely modeled Christ-likeness, and he poured his life out for other people. Uh, every person, I've seen so many people sharing stories about John's life, and my story is the very same as theirs. He went out of his way uh, to befriend me, to be kind to me, to encourage me and look after me. He was somebody who uh, was not just an incredible friend, but he was an incredible dad, an incredible husband. He was an incredible pastor. And, you know, it feels to all of us like he has gone too soon. It is a, like Lindsay said, an utter shock. Uh, please, please, you know, we would ask you just personally, please pray for his wife, Catherine, and for their four children, uh, that God would sustain them. Uh, so encouraging this week has been just a testimony about uh, how faithful John was. Uh, there was a GoFundMe that was set up to just try to help defray uh, expenses and make life a little bit easier for his family uh, in the days ahead. And uh, very, very quickly, that has raised uh, well over $200,000 uh, by so many people just giving uh, generously and selflessly, some people chipping in small amounts as low as $15 or $20, and other people giving much, much larger amounts to that. But we are you know, we've been blown away just to see people ministering to their family through that and through so many other ways. Uh, but it is it is truly a devastating loss. But what we have been able to say about John's life is the very thing I hope that people will be able to say about each of us, which is that it was a life lived well in pursuit of Christ. There was a, a really good uh, Baptist Press article uh, this week that uh, just talked about the entire situation and um, had multiple quotes from very prominent uh, leaders that uh, knew John and knew his ministry, and and it just speaks so highly of the effect that he had on individuals across our denomination and the, the wider evangelical world. So we'll link to that, and we'll also link to the GoFundMe page uh, that Josh mentioned, uh, because there has been such an outpouring of support. And if you're moved uh, by this, we would love to, to have you join us in, uh, in coming around uh, John's family uh, with uh, this small bit of appreciation. Uh, so, so yeah. So, Lindsay and Josh, that is your look at this week in culture. So now we're going to talk to a special guest. He's actually a return guest to the podcast, our colleague at the ERLC, Jason Thacker. Jason is the master of all things tech uh, and is the person who keeps us informed about the things that are going on in the world. We're excited to talk to Jason today about a number of different things. But Jason, as we get started, let me just say, welcome back, man. Tell us a little bit about how this summer has been going for you as we've all been in quarantine and what kind of things are you working on right now? Well, it's kind of fitting that I come back today because I think we started, I was on the podcast last when we went into quarantine. Um, and so that just tells you how long we've actually been in quarantine. Uh, but it's going really well. Uh, it's been fun. My wife and I have been able to get out of the house a little bit and work out. And I'm probably in the best shape that I've been in a long time, uh, thanks to COVID and thanks to the pandemic and quarantine. So it's been going well. I think over you're else. in the minority on that one, man. I, if, I had to do it because we can't go anywhere. Um, because of my wife, uh, the chemo treatment she was on and her immune system being pretty shot, she's considered high risk. And so we really can't go anywhere. Uh, so our only reprieve is to go for a run or a walk. Typically as a family, sometimes we do it individually as well, but uh, feeling pretty good. Well, Jason, since you joined us at the beginning of the pandemic and now you're joining us, uh, maybe we'll talk to you in 2021 at the end of lockdown. <laughs> let's, let's Don't wish that let's, evil upon let's, us. Let's see if you're still in shape then. <laughs> <laughs> you might have given in to the donuts. But um, so you've written and spoken a lot about TikTok and the many privacy concerns related to it. Do you think TikTok is something Christians should avoid? And see, that's a really complicated question because TikTok is a really enjoyable app. It's kind of taken off during the pandemic, primarily because people are locked in their homes and it's fun. There's lots of fun videos. Even this past week, there was a Hamilton Anthony Fauci video that's just really, really funny to watch that it was kind of themed after the um, the play Hamilton. And so there's just a lot of fun stuff on it and it's really enjoyable. You see families and friends getting together to do these TikTok videos, um, but there's kind of an underlying danger that a lot of people aren't aware of, um, and that's the parent company ByteDance. 
um, is heavily connected. They're based out of Beijing and they're heavily connected to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and listeners probably know from following our work here at the ERLC that there are massive human rights violations being committed and religious liberty violations being committed by the Chinese Communist Party. And they're doing that on the back of technology. Um, they have that kind of public-private partnership that we don't see in many places throughout the world where the government can request data. They can kind of uh, work through these companies to get access to sensitive data. And so it's concerning. Um, and this is why you're starting to see a lot of uh, even the United States considering a possible ban on TikTok, uh, which kind of you have both sides infuriated about in many ways because there are major privacy and security concerns with it. Uh, not only from personal standpoint, but even national security. But then it's also uh, it's we're in a free market and we have these applications and it's a it's a fun kind of enjoyable app that's really gone viral over the last few months. Um, so there's that tension. And so I wouldn't want to say Christians should definitely avoid it or definitely adopt it, but to say you need to be really wise about the type of data and the type of uh, security issues that we see here with TikTok. And we're already starting to see some American companies come out with uh, similar type of offerings. Uh, YouTube has a thing that's uh, proposed to come out this fall called YouTube Shorts. Instagram is working on a very similar type of video platform. And so I'm hopeful that we'll see kind of market opportunities come and market alternatives come up because there are a lot of dangers uh, concerning TikTok. Jason, so you wrote a book about AI called The Age of AI. And another thing that you've been focused on is the use of facial recognition and surveillance technology. So can you tell us why we as Christians, like this, is this something that we should be concerned about? I do think it's something we should be concerned about, and primarily because facial recognition is becoming more and more ubiquitous in our society. We already use it. If you have an Apple iPhone, you use Face ID. Um, you're starting to see places like uh, the clear technology that's being used in the airports that most of us can't go to right now during the pandemic to be able to check in. Um, you can use a facial scan instead of a passport or an ID or even a ticket uh, to get into the airport. It's kind of a, a new type of screening. And you're going to start to see this kind of played out in other types of venues, concert venues, all the things that we want to do, uh, these kind of large gathering venues after the pandemic. But it's also being deployed in policing. Uh, over 600 police departments throughout the nation are even using uh, the Clearview AI technology that's kind of made news over the last six or so months after a New York Times uh, expose in January about kind of the shady dealings of this company and how they've worked with um, police departments and the government officials. But one of the things that if you take a step back about how this technology is built, facial recognition technology is built on the back of artificial intelligence, where it's taking uh, various image data and kind of categorizing that and being able to recognize faces. And so while it's a very cool and useful technology, this technology also it has inherent flaws and bias and difficulties, uh, whether it returns false positives, it doesn't always recognize someone's face uh, correctly. But it, we're seeing that specifically with minorities, uh, where these systems are trained typically on more white European faces, and they're coming across with either false negatives or false positives, that is, or just inaccurate results, uh, considering people of color. And there's been numerous studies done on this to say there's a lot of danger. So when you take facial recognition and deploy it in policing, which are often volatile and high stakes environments, even with a considerable mistrust in a lot of our uh, governments uh, throughout the nation in this moment, it's just not, in my opinion, a wise thing for us to just mass deploy because of the known biases and discrimination, kind of discriminatory practices of facial recognition, specifically in these really high stakes environments. So it's something that I think we should be wise about, we should be thoughtful, and that we should slow down implementing. Um, I'm not advocating for a moratorium technically on the technology, but to be aware of the inherent difficulties and um, the bias that can be present in these types of technologies, because ultimately we believe in the human dignity. We believe in the image of God of every single human being. We don't want these technologies to be used in ways that dehumanize or in many ways put our brothers and sisters of color in undue danger and harm, all based on a, a flawed technology that may or may not identify them correctly. 
That's such a good point, Jason. And we're thankful to have people like you speaking out about this and speaking up um, for the dignity of all human beings. So sticking with AI, we want to bring up uh, the fact that you led one of the major initiatives of the ERLC, and that was the AI statement. Many people might not know about this. So can you tell us about the statement and why it was needed? Yeah, last April we released what's called Artificial Intelligence, an Evangelical Statement of Principles, uh, which is simply kind of a belief system or framework, uh, kind of highlighting various principles that we should engage uh, the field of artificial intelligence with as Christians. It was signed by over 80 evangelical leaders from across the denominations and across the nation as a way to do two things. First and foremost, to educate and equip the local church, which is central to our mission as the ERLC. We wanted to raise kind of uh, public conversation about artificial intelligence because it is one of those technologies that isn't often when you hear of AI, you think of something that's far off and futuristic, killer robots, Hollywood plot films and things like that, rather than technology we're already using every single day. And just like we talked about with facial recognition, AI is everywhere. We're using it every single moment of the day, but often not thinking about it wisely, thinking about it in light of scripture and how God would call us to live as his image bearers in this world. So that was the kind of the first goal was to educate and equip the local church, but then two, to participate in the larger kind of cultural conversations that are going on. Um, because you see whether it's governments, whether it's corporations um, and other kind of entities starting to raise concerns about AI ethics or ethical principles or the worldview that goes behind a lot of these technological developments. And as Christians, we believe we have the hope of the world. We know the creator of the universe. Uh, he's called us to live a certain way in this life. And there are many Christians in these fields of AI and technology, computer science and development who already are being driven by these type of principles. So to be able to write them down, to be able to come together and agree on them kind of gives us a platform and a basis to enter into public conversation uh, that really needs to happen surrounding these technologies and their impacts on our, not just as us as individuals, our families, our local communities, our churches, but even kind of the wider world. You see the rise of AI being used, as we talked about earlier, with the Chinese Communist Party and a lot of the authoritarian and abusive uses of these technologies. And we have principles. We have a way that we've been called as Christians to live in this world. And that's exactly why we put that statement together. And it's been received really well. It's been incredibly encouraged by the way the Lord has used it so far. And we pray and hope that the Lord continues to use it in the years to come. You're absolutely right, Jason. We are called uh, to live our life in a particular way, and I'm thankful for your reminder of that. Speaking of life, let's end on a lighter note. So once we're all out of this isolated season that we're in, what is something you are most looking forward to once everything returns to a relative normal? Well, it probably sounds a little silly because some of the things that my family is particularly looking forward to are things that other people have been able to do through the pandemic. Um, since I, some listeners may or may not know that my wife was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma last November, and she has been under her own quarantine in our home since then, really hasn't been able to go out and do much of anything other than go to doctors. And then when the pandemic hit, um, I also became under full quarantine because um, – we couldn't, she's considered high risk and we couldn't expose her to the virus. And so for us, it's just going into a store. I can't tell you the last time I actually went inside of a store or went to our Mex our favorite kind of Mexican restaurant and were able to eat. Um, or, it, you know, right now, the biggest thing is uh, we want to be able to see our family. I haven't seen my mother since Christmas. Um, and that was just for a few minutes. Even I haven't seen my father since last fall. Um, all because of illness and sickness and things that we just couldn't expose my wife to. So for us, it might sound a little silly is we just want to see people. Uh, we want to see family. We want to be able to see friends and we want to be able to go into Target and pick up and get something rather than just having to pull up and have it brought to us. Uh, just those little conveniences of life would be a big blessing right now. Man, I know you're, you guys are definitely looking forward to having the opportunity just to return to a lot of the things that, like you said, most of us have taken for granted, even during this time of pandemic. And so, you know, we're grateful to God to see the work he's done in you know, your wife's life in terms of uh, the successful treatment of her cancer. And, you know, God willing, we're praying that that will be, be something that is not only sufficient for now, but sufficient forever. And, uh, man, in addition to, you know, all of, all of that stuff, we're just grateful, Jason, for the work that you're doing at the RLC, the way that you're serving evangelical 
schools and Southern Baptist, and in addition to that, just just all of us as you're helping uh, our culture and society uh, navigate uh, the difficult and complex challenges that come along with AI and other kinds of technology. So uh, we just want to say thanks so much, man, for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so tell us what's on your mind. Okay, I just have a quick few things. First of all, I would like to recognize that today is officially one year until the Tokyo Olympics. I had forgotten that because of coronavirus and this awful year that is 2020, we are not able to watch the Summer Olympics, which I love. So uh, one more year and it'll be here in 2021 and hopefully we'll all be out of quarantine, coronavirus free, excited and ready to cheer on our home country. Next up, I have just started listening to the new Eric Larson book who writes really good narrative books, uh, true stories. And this one's titled The Splendid and the Vile. And it is about Winston Churchill and World War II and just looks, uh, it's not like a massive scope of his life, but looks at him in the midst of World War II. And um, I'm just a little bit into it, but I can tell it's going to be good. Winston Churchill was such a fascinating character. And really the one point that I have just been dying to point out since I listened to it, is that he would often hold meetings in his bed, while in his bed, and he would hold meetings while in the bathtub. That was one of his favorite places to work. And so I'm kind of glad that uh, that, that that practice is not really looked highly upon anymore. It's just so fascinating to me. Anyway, okay, before I get myself in trouble, let me move on to the final thing. And that is just a quick story for everyone. You know, in the midst of such sadness and heartache and not understanding the Lord's work, I just have to tell a quick story about my neighbor, Miss Maggie, who moved here last year to be near her grown son and grandkids. Her husband has had died recently, and she, um, just a sweet woman, I believe she knows and loves the Lord, and uh, she was suddenly diagnosed with stage four liver cancer and just refused to take treatment because in her, in her uh, estimation, it was a young man's battle. That's what she said. She just wanted to enjoy the rest of the time she had, so joyful, and she's doing so well. The doctors gave her four to five months to live doing so well that the hospice nurses who would come over were actually getting in trouble because their bosses didn't think that they were doing their job. And uh, she just found out this week that the cancer is gone, stage four liver cancer. As we record this, she's having a follow-up scan, but she is just thrilled and has just said that the Lord has, um, has done a miracle. And so it's just good to be reminded of the presence and the power of the Lord and the sovereignty of the Lord in the midst of heartache that All of these things are in his control. He's working them for our good. We just can't always see it. Um, But I was just grateful for some really incredible, amazing news um, during 2020. Following that up, my my lunchroom actually feels pretty small in comparison, especially because part of it was meant to dunk on Lindsay. Uh, Oh, come on. I'll go ahead and, and give it a shot. So I just uh, was thinking about it this week, and I remember the first thing that I ever wrote uh, for ERLC was a book review of David Brooks's book, The Road to Character. And I worked super hard on it, was so impressed, like was nervous to uh, like show it to everyone uh, at the ERLC and send it in. And honestly, like I got really great feedback on it. People really liked it, which is cool. And honestly, it's a fantastic book. So you should read it. But I remember the, like in the book, uh, one of the main themes, he talks about uh, what he calls resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And so uh, the thing that I was so proud of in this book review that I had written was this first line, because I thought, man, what a great opening. And the opening line was, no one will read your resume at your funeral. And then I finally saw the, uh, that actually was a book review that was printed in Light Magazine and they cut the line. Like, so I don't know if it was Lindsay, if it was Marie, but somebody was like, they, they didn't see the genius that was that. So obviously I've been stewing on it for about four years now. And um, yesterday I just decided, you know what? That line deserves to, li- deserves to live. So I just tweeted it out on the internet. And you know what, Lindsay? The people loved it. They loved it. So there you go. No one will read your resume at your funeral. (laughs) Five retweets. Five. (laughs) I don't know why I would have gotten rid of that line. I will say in those book review spaces for Life Magazine, you have to cut a lot for some reason. But I'm so sorry. Maybe it just wasn't the time for that line yet. And now, now is the time. So Josh, have, have you been carrying this burden? For five years, this this thorn in your flesh. 
I have a printed out copy of that book review in my wallet. It stays with me all the time. No, that's totally a joke. Uh, but on a more serious note, or at least another thing that's really helpful. So um, a group of friends, I was really challenged a few weeks ago when uh, for the ERLC's uh, PhD seminar, uh, we had uh, Dr. Robert George from Princeton come in and sit in with us for a few minutes. And we were asking him for advice. And one of the things he said is, look, if you haven't read uh, a bunch of the classics, you need to read them. If you've not read uh, Plato and Aristotle, you need to read them. And so, you know, I have used Plato and Aristotle uh, in my like academic life and in my research, but I've never really sat down and actually committed to uh, reading through some of their major works. And so me and a group of friends have been uh, over the summer reading through uh, the works of Aristotle. So uh, we started and we read Nicomachean Ethics, and then now we are uh, into Aristotle's politics. And they've both been fantastic. And so this is just, you know, if you're a nerd or you know, if you don't want to have to say I've never read Aristotle before, uh, you could start right there with either one of these books uh, and dive in. And um, anyway, it's been a lot of fun for me and my friends, and it's the thing I'm thinking about right now. Politics is very good, Josh. All right, so for my lunchroom segment, maybe it's because I am a citizen of one of you know the eleven cities with an uncontrolled spread of coronavirus in our streets and neighborhoods. So my lunchroom segment veered towards masks for the week. And honestly, these masks are horrifying. So <laughs> so uh, Apple News uh, found this individual. It's an artist turned accidental entrepreneur who has come up with a solution to uh, social hygiene for protection during the coronavirus crisis. And that is face masks. Very specific personal taste masks. That's right. Users submit photos of themselves and the company makes facial coverings to match features and skin tone with the pledge to make the wearer more easily recognizable during viral pandemics. So so if you can imagine you're walking down the street and somebody is looking at you with this fixed grin and uh, that's because they have had a mask made of their smile and it's horrifying. It is the stuff of nightmares when you see the pictures on this or uh, in this article that we will link to in the show notes. But uh, yeah. I'm looking at it right now, and yeah, you're right. It's pretty creepy. I particularly like when the girl in this article puts on the face mask of another, well, a man, an old man <laughs> with a gray beard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. <sighs> so there you go. That's that's my that's my lunchroom contribution for the week because I've had nightmares about this. Well, in the midst of this, uh, you know, crazy time, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. So just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or a brief review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.